Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, except for today, which is a bonus episode where we are watching a horror-adjacent film chosen by our patrons of the night at patreon.com slash podcast. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? Well, a little, little all over the place, TBH. Yeah. Uh, so we're on kind of a vacation. I mean, we are on, you're on vacation. I'm fully on vacation. I'm on you kind are of half. Vac- yes. Yeah. Um, we Still talk- having to work. <laughs> yes. We talked about this in our most recent regular episode, but we have booked ourselves into a hotel in downtown Calgary. Um, we live in Calgary. So this is just more about like getting out of our house and um, being in a hotel and sort of doing things where we're getting pampered and spending time by a pool and going to restaurants than it is about like going to like some exotic locale. Yes, we are still social distancing, masking, all that jazz, trying to be as responsible as possible. Even if like other people have decided that apparently they don't need need masks. No, Uh, we're certainly walking around everywhere with a mask on. But yeah, so if the audio experience is different, it's it's because we're in a hotel room downtown. People have been asking about this horror adjacent movie for a long time now. Mm-hmm. I think since we started the podcast, honestly. Yeah. And like, I feel like it's one of the more frequently like name dropped movies when we would sort of name drop options for horror adjacent movies once we started doing this uh, subseries. So what are we watching Today, Sarah, we are watching Young Frankenstein, directed by Mel Brooks from 1974. So we've both seen this movie before. Yeah. What is your first experience with Young Frankenstein? I don't remember how old I was the first time I saw it. It would have been on VHS. Um, It was kind of a neat VHS because they put all the deleted scenes at the end of the tape. Oh, neat. So you could just watch them one right after another. Um, So I often forget... (laughs) <laughs> that the deleted scenes are deleted. Like I often just think of them as being part of the movie. Um, but you know, my, my parents were, you know, the exact right kind of age frame to be big, like Mel Brooks people, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so like, I kind of grew up, like I think the first Mel Brooks movie I saw was Spaceballs, probably because it's like the most immature uh, in terms of his comedy. And also like is parodying star Wars. And I was a big star Wars kid. Right. And then, you know, seeing more of his movies as I got older. Um, when I saw Young Frankenstein, I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I had already seen the Universal Frankenstein movies from mm-hmm. renting them on VHS uh, and watching them with my grandfather. So I had that basis already. And then I don't think I saw Blazing Saddles until I was even older yet, but still a teenager. I saw Blazing Saddles at way too young an age. How old were you? Uh, I would have been at least 12. That is probably too young for Blazing Saddles. Yes. Uh, and I probably saw Young Frankenstein around that same age as well. Yeah. Uh, my mom is a big Mel Brooks fan. She's not what I would call a horror fan. Like, she's not someone who comes to mind when thinking of a fan of the classic universal horror like right. Frankenstein or Dracula. Right. But... 
She definitely loves Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, The Producers. Mm-hmm. Um, she She's a Brooks, Brooksian. <laughs> right. I think I mostly think of your mom as being like a fan of like the musical version of The Producers. Yes. Which, you know, Mel Brooks did have a hand in adapting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... But like, it still can't. It's not like she's a fake Brooks fan, right? Yeah, I'm just like a big hipster and prefer the original version. Yeah. Um, had you seen any like Frankenstein movies before you saw Young Frankenstein? Probably not. That's weird. But I can't recall for sure. Right. Yeah, I think I was probably between 12 and 14 when I saw this for the first time, Uh, and then like, you know, bought it on DVD later, and you know, I've seen it. Like, many, many times by now. Yeah. Um, well, Frankenstein is in the name. Right. So we should give a rundown on what Frankensteins this is riffing off of. Yes. And I, I'm happy that in some ways that it took us this long to get around to doing horror-adjacent stuff. Because we've seen all the Universal Frankensteins for the show by now. Yeah. Now, I won't be talking about any of the Hammer-related Frankensteins because... That's not what this movie's riffing on. Correct, yeah. This movie is specifically riffing on Universal's Frankenstein films. In the director's commentary uh, for Young Frankenstein, Mel Brooks specifically calls out the first four Frankensteins as Young Frankenstein being a sequel to. Mm-hmm. So that would be The 31 Frankenstein by James Whale, the 1935 Bride of Frankenstein, also by James Whale, the 1939 Son of Frankenstein by Roland V. Lee, and the 1942 Ghost of Frankenstein by Earl C. Kenton. Of course, that's only half of the Universal Frankenstein legacy up to this point, as there are four others that I will be mentioning. So let me let me let me give you a rundown about like what happens in the Frankenstein mythos. Sure. Yeah, I think even in Young Frankenstein, like they have a character who says like We've had four previous incidents or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, five previous incidents. Oh, so including Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, I guess. I guess. Yeah. So in the very first Frankenstein, uh, we cover that film in episode 26. Woof. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, we were so young then, we Sarah. Were. <laughs> um, we see a Henry Frankenstein obsessed with the idea of creating life. He creates the creature. Um, and as that creature gets raised and abused by Fritz, the hunchback assistant, the creature becomes violent, eventually killing Henry's mentor, um, and going on the run. There's a little girl that gets killed by being tossed into a lake, angry mobs, etc. Eventually, Henry and his creature confront each other in a windmill uh, that gets lit on fire, and Henry gets tossed from atop the windmill, and um, then the structure crumbles in the fire. And for reasons we kind of go into in that episode, Henry Frankenstein has a different name than his counterpart from the original novel, who's Victor Frankenstein. Yeah, in that film, uh, Henry's friend is named Victor. Yeah, Victor Clerval, who is actually Henry Clerval in the novel, just to make everything... Extra confusing. Correct. 
The original Frankenstein is currently ranked on the list at number 17 out of 200. Wow, pretty darn good. In 1935, James Whale came back again for Bride of Frankenstein, which we covered in episode 48. Um, Turns out the creature is alive. He goes and hides in the woods, escaping some hunters and mobs, uh, and he meets a good old hermit and finally gets a friend and learns how to speak until uh, some hunters run him out of that little cabin. Um, Basically, the creature wants a friend. He wants a mate. So he uh, confronts Frankenstein. Now, during that time while the creature was hiding in the woods, Frankenstein was brought back in and tempted again by another old mentor of his, Dr. Praetorius, um, who's like, I'll make the brain, you make a new creature. And then when a Karloff creature comes back in, it's like, okay, we'll make you a mate. We'll make you a bride. Uh, It all goes horribly wrong, especially once the bride comes to life and screams at the creature, is terrified of him. And so the creature pulls a lever to blow up the lab, saying, we belong dead. Um, So the castle lab is blown up, but Frankenstein and uh, his, I think he's married by this point, Elizabeth, his wife, uh, escape being blown up. And that is ranked at number 18. Hmm. Four years later, the comeback of horror in that uh, time period, we get The Son of Frankenstein, uh, which we covered in episode 66. Um, In this, the son of Frankenstein, Wolf von Frankenstein at this time, uh, he returns to the estate and decides, you know, I'm going to redeem my father's reputation. And as he gets kind of brought into the family insanity he begins to create the creature recreate him and also uh believe that his father is no longer a creator of monsters but of men this is uh also the film that introduces us to inspector croak who is uh an older gentleman who um has a mechanical arm because as a boy the original creature tore off his arm mm-hmm. so Wolf von Frankenstein meets Igor, who is a hanged man who survived. Yes. I lived, bitch. Yes. And Igor um, helps Wolf von Frankenstein find the creature and bring him back to life. Um, But Wolf is surprised to find that the creature will only listen to Igor's commands. And Igor is basically using the creature to kill the jurors who sentenced him to death in the first place. Now everything comes to a head, and in that climax, uh, the creature gets pushed, literally, into the sulfur pits below the uh, existing laboratory, Mm. and Igor gets shot, but he lives, bitch, and uh, Wolf von Frankenstein leaves the estate to the town and heads back to London with his family. And that is ranked at number 13. Yeah, because it's the best one. It is. It's proven. Yes. Then in 1942, Earl C. Kenton gets a a shot at the director's chair uh, with The Ghost of Frankenstein, which we covered in episode 90. And here we see Igor discover the creature, somehow still alive in the sulfur pits, and they head to the nearby town where the other son of Frankenstein, uh, named Ludwig, is living. Um, And basically, Igor gets Ludwig's colleague to transplant his brain into the creature, 
Igor's brain is rejected by the creature's bodies, which causes the creature to, to go blind, and the hospital burns down with the creature inside it. And we ranked that at number 109. Quite a precipitous drop. Uh, I believe it's the lowest ranked of these Universal Frankensteins. Hmm. So those are the four movies that Mel Brooks has specifically called out Young Frankenstein as a sequel to. Yeah, and there are definitely scenes from all four of those movies that get recreated to some degree or another in Young Frankenstein. Yeah. In 1943, we get Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, which we covered in episode 102. It establishes some of the same kind of beats that we're going to see in upcoming Frankenstein movies. Basically, Larry, the wolfman, gets brought back to life somehow. And the he's, moon. The moon brings him back to life in some sort of way. And he's like, oh, my existence is a curse. So he goes to um, a Baroness Elsa von Frankenstein, the daughter of Ludwig, therefore the granddaughter to Henry. To see if, like, her grandfather's work will help cure him. Uh, meanwhile, a Dr. Mannering is chasing after Larry because he's just trying to help him, cure him of what he thinks are delusions of lycanthropy. Um, but Dr. Mannering finds Frankenstein's notes, finds the creature, and basically gets so, like, fascinated about the creature itself that he completely forgets about his original patient, Larry, and... In the end, uh, Larry transforms into the Wolfman to have a fight to the death with Frankenstein's creature as uh, the townspeople blow up the nearby dam, which takes out the castle. Uh, now, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman is ranked at number 74. Okay. Not bad. Not good. But not bad. Yeah. I think we gave it a lot of leeway because it's like the first like... Crossover movie? Exactly. Now, the following year, uh, we get House of Frankenstein, the very first Monster Rally movie. Now, we cover that in episode 125. We find that the creature and the wolfman are preserved nice. A mad scientist played by Karloff melts them out. First, the wolfman, and wolfman's like, hey, can you use Frankenstein to cure me? And Karloff, mad scientist, is like, yeah, sure. By putting your brain in the creature, the creature breaks out of the ice he has to fight Wolfman, and uh, Wolfman gets shot by his love interest in this story, and the creature walks off with the doctor in his arms. Uh, sorry, ki- basically like kidnapping the doctor. I don't mm-hmm. want it to seem like it's a romantic thing. It's no. it's a horror movie, um, but takes him and walks straight into the marshes, um, killing the doctor and himself. Also, Dracula's there. Also, Dracula does show up here. Um, so that's ranked at number 73. Okay. <laughs> Next year, we get 1945's House of Dracula, uh, which we covered in episode 134. Now, a new, possibly different, all new, all different Dracula. Possibly the same. Possibly the same. It's unclear. uh, Is around and he's looking for a cure to his vampirism. So he goes to this doctor. Um, Wolfman also shows up to this doctor, also looking for a cure for his lycanthropy. And uh, the doctor happens to find 
the creature in a, a nearby ocean cave underneath the castle and everything goes awry and the castle burns down with uh, the creature going on a rampage inside. Yeah, the these three movies have basically the same plot mm-hmm. over and over. But apparently this one was better because it's ranked at number 72. Yeah, because Dracula was more integrated into the plot this time. Mm-hmm. And then our final Frankenstein movie uh, from Universal so far has been 1948's Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein, which we covered in the first horror-adjacent bonus episode. That's right. Uh, and this is not ranked on, on the list. That's right. Um, in this film, uh, Costello has been chosen to be the new brain for the creature as planned by Dracula and a Dr. Sandra Mornay. Uh, Wolfman is trying to help Abbott and Costello thwart Dracula's plans. Um, eventually, Wolfman and Dracula kill each other, and the creature uh, is burned up in a fire at the docks as uh, Abbott and Costello make their escape. Mm-hmm. So that that's those are the Frankenstein movies as yes. done by Universal. Yes. Um, that uh, Brooks is riffing off of here in Young Frankenstein. Yeah. In some ways, Young Frankenstein is like a sequel to these universal movies but it's not like super interested in exact continuity um it's definitely like inspired by oh yeah like yes it's riffing on them yes it's also kind of like following up threads as if it's a sequel and it's also parodying and satirizing yes the tropes that they establish and everything and as i said like it's repeating specific scenes and you know, and there's just like, if you're a continuity nerd, like, you know, like you are. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, that's not how that was left. That's not how this was. Um, Young Frankenstein gives the doctor his real name back. So he's back to being Victor Frankenstein, um, stuff like that. And I, I feel like a big part of that, like not matching the continuity precisely is, you know, like, yes, it's like a parody and who cares but also like this movie was made in a time before home video yeah so it's like all that the audience has to go on is like their foggy memory of these movies or like maybe their memory of seeing them on like tv or getting Mm -hmm. re-released in the 50s right so it's it's less about being like an exact follow-up to the universal movies and more about being like a follow-up to the idea of the universal (laughs) frankenstein movies you know absolutely it's like how um the version of Zorro that Anthony Hopkins plays in the mask of Zorro isn't any specific previous version of Zorro, but just kind of like an amalgamation of your pop culture memories of different versions of Zorro. Yeah. Yeah. So last horror adjacent episode, we switched things up where you gave the background and I gave the full production history and the history of the people right. involved. Right. We've further switched things up again because for this horror adjacent episode, I've just given the cultural background and now I'm also going to go into the production background and you're going to give the biographies of everyone involved. That's right. We're trying to split the work. There's a lot of things to talk about with young Frankenstein. Yeah. So, you know, this seems to be like the easiest way to make sure no one person was having to like, I don't know, be a bit like Sisyphus. Sure. I get to be Richard Graves this week. Who does that make me? Can I be Roger Ebert? <laughs> sure. He's such a lovely human. So the production of Young Frankenstein begins when Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks were filming Blazing Saddles in 1973. Apparently, 
Wilder was writing on a notepad about the grandson of Victor Frankenstein, who would want nothing to do with the family, um, but basically gets sucked into the insanity of this family. Now, Brooks liked the idea at the time, but it didn't really hit any kind of planning stages until later. And that moment happened when Wilder's agent called and asked if he had a project in mind that could have Gene Wilder, Peter Boyle, and Marty Feldman put together. Uh, Because apparently the agent had just signed the other two actors and wanted a picture for all of them. Triple the money. And Wilder was like, well, just so happens I do uh, have something. Uh, And since his agent, the treatment, and a rough scene, and the agent was like, perfect. And Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman were on board. Now, this agent did suggest Brooks as the director, and Wilder wasn't sure he would go for it because up to this point, Brooks had only directed things that he had also written. But I guess when the agent suggested it to Brooks, Brooks was like, dope. In those exact words, he was like, dope, I'm on board. Tell us about Mel Brooks, Ben. Sure. Mel Brooks is a very famous comedian, satirist, parody maker. Parodist? Parodist? Uh, yeah. But definitely a, a, a guy who does a lot of parodies um, mm-hmm. with a, a career that spans both before Young Frankenstein and Long after. after. Yes. He was born Melvin Kaminsky on June 28th, 1926 in Brooklyn. His parents were Jewish immigrants and his father died of kidney disease when Mel was two years old. Mel was a small, sickly kid and determined when he was nine years old that he wanted to go into show business. He was taught to play drums by Buddy Rich, one of the greatest drummers of the 20th century, Hmm. um, who just lived in the same neighborhood as Mel Brooks. (laughs) And he became a musician at age 14. He changed his name to avoid confusion with the jazz trumpeter Max Kaminsky. Hmm. Brooks served as a combat engineer in World War II, diffusing landmines as the Allies advanced into Nazi Germany. Fuck. After the war, Brooks worked as a musician in nightclubs and then became a stand-up comic after a performer who was scheduled was sick one night and couldn't make it. Um, Brooks sort of worked his way up the nightclub comedy ranks, but preferred behind-the-scenes work and took a job as a television comedy writer for Sid Caesar, including working on his popular and influential program, Your Show of Shows, from 1950 to 1954. Brooks developed a friendship with fellow writer Carl Reiner, and the two developed comedy routines with each other, the most popular of which being The 2,000-Year-Old Man, where Reiner plays a straight man interviewer who is interviewing Brooks, who is the 2,000-year-old man uh, who, you know, was alive for the crucifixion and and all of these things. (laughs) Uh, This routine became highly successful. It, you know, went from being performed at parties to being performed at nightclubs to being performed on TV to being recorded as an album, getting its own comedy special, um, so on and so forth. Wow. Uh, Literally when like Brooks hit low points in his career, he could always rely on regular income from royalties from the sales of the 2000 year old man comedy album. Nice. In 1963, uh, Brooks created the short film, the critic, which uh, he didn't direct, but he sort of created it and he starred in it. It is a satire of like artsy cinema where basically like 
an experimental film is playing on screen, but Brooks is giving the voice of an average person in the theater, like giving running commentary as they watch it. Oh, a little bit like Mystery Science Theater 3000, but done quote unquote straight. Well, like being done on like art cinema where it's like Brooks is just playing the average show being like, hey, what's this? Like, what's this cockamamie stuff? Um, Anyways, that short film won the Academy Award for Best Short Film. In 1965, Brooks created the sitcom Get Smart with um, fellow writer Buck Henry. That show starred Don Adams as a bumbling James Bond parody character. um, Very much a satire of the Bond movies of the time. And for younger listeners, that show is also the basis for Inspector Gadget. Yeah. Um, Don Adams plays the voice of Inspector Gadget. He's basically the exact same character, um, just a cyborg. The inspiration of the show for Brooks was a desire to get sitcoms away from reality and the family and like really explode what sitcoms could be about and take them into like weird fantasy stuff. Um, as well, he had a desire to produce the first show on television to have a complete moron as a lead character. <laughs> the show ran for five years and won seven Emmys. Meanwhile, Brooks's long gestating ideas about a musical comedy about Hitler finally bore fruit with his first feature film the producers in 1968 starring zero mostel and gene wilder no major studio would touch the film so brooks found an independent distributor to show it on the art house circuit it made 1.6 million dollars on its 941 thousand dollar budget a surprise hit And Brooks won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, beating out fellow nominees like Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke for 2001 A Space Odyssey. (laughs) Oh my god, Kubrick was probably so mad. Oh yeah. Brooks's second film, The Twelve Chairs, was an adaptation of a 1928 Russian satirical novel about greed and materialism. It received mixed reviews and was a financial failure. Oh. Brooks thought that his career was over. But his agent got him a deal to direct a Western parody film for Warner Brothers, which would evolve into Blazing Saddles. I believe the original title before he got attached to it was Tex-X. Yeah. Starring Cleavon Little and Gene Wilder, the film grossed $119.6 million when it was released on February 7th, 1974, against a budget of $2.6 million. It was nominated for three Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actress for Madeline Kahn. It was the second highest grossing picture of 1974 behind The Towering Inferno. Now, Gene Wilder had actually only agreed to appear in Blazing Saddles on the condition that Brooks's next film would be Wilder's idea of doing a spoof sequel to the Universal Frankenstein movies. Oh, okay. Um, Wilder wasn't originally cast in Blazing Saddles, but the original actor quit, I think, or died. And then the second actor got sick and Brooks had to like beg Wilder to do it. And so Wilder was like, then you have to do my Frankenstein thing. So that's, that's why Brooks did Young Frankenstein. So after Blazing Saddles wrapped filming, Brooks and Wilder wrote the script for Young Frankenstein and then shot it in the spring of 1974. A stipulation of Wilder's was that Brooks not appear in the movie, 
um, because he felt that Mel Brooks had a tendency to break the fourth wall and pull the audience out of the story. And Wilder wanted to like have the movie be a comedy, but also have it like work as a story. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. You notice that whenever Brooks is in a movie, whenever he gets his scene, like it is a very much a uh, fourth wall kind of comedy with that. Yeah. Because Brooks doesn't, Brooks isn't an actor is the thing. Yeah, He's a comic, right? So he doesn't play characters. He plays caricatures and he also plays to the audience. Now, the other thing about young Frankenstein, like working as a story in addition to working as a comedy film is a more significant statement. If you've watched a lot of comedy films from the late sixties, which tend to be kind of surreal nonsense that usually falls apart into chaos at the end. See blazing saddles. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, so Brooks is only featured in the movie in three voice roles, mm-hmm. a wolf howl, the voice of Victor Frankenstein and a screeching cat. Yes. Young Frankenstein was the third highest grossing film of 1974 behind Blazing Saddles, which I cannot imagine having directed two of the top three grossing movies in a single year. Um, but it made $86.2 million on a $2 million budget. And it got an Oscar nomination for Brooks and Wilder for Best Adapted Screenplay, which they lost out to Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo for The Godfather Part Two, which I feel like... I'll take the L. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, Brooks went on to do many other films, um, adapted the producers into a stage musical, which then got adapted into another movie, um, TV shows, all kinds of stuff. Long career. Um, But he does feel that Young Frankenstein was his best work as a director, but not his funniest movie. Yes, he says Blazing Saddles is his funniest, uh, followed shortly by The Producers, which is very interesting to me because that is from a an interview in like 2009 to 2014, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So. He's thinking about all of the work he's done, and he's thinking of his earliest work as the funniest. Yeah, and I would agree that Blazing Saddles is funnier than Young Frankenstein, but I would also agree that Young Frankenstein is a better movie. Yeah. Um, Well, I feel like we can't move on from talking about Mel Brooks without talking about Gene Wilder. Sure. One thing I noticed doing these biography researches was, like, seeing what the different people had like in common there's like certain aspects to their life histories that are all very similar gene wilder was born jerome silberman on june 11th 1933 in milwaukee wisconsin to russian jewish immigrants he first became interested in acting and comedy when his mother came down with rheumatic fever and the doctor told young jerome to try and make her laugh to keep her spirits up. He also really looked up to his sister who had wanted to be an actress. So he started getting lessons from her acting teacher. His mother felt that he wouldn't achieve his full potential in Wisconsin. So she sent him to Black Fox Military Academy in Hollywood. Okay. <laughs> like <laughs> You're not reaching your full potential as a comedian. So you're headed to military school. I think the idea was to try and put him in Hollywood. And this was the only way that like a poor family in Wisconsin could do it. Sure. That being said, he was the only Jewish boy at the school. And for that, he suffered bullying, abuse, and sexual assault. Oh. So he dropped out and came back home. And 
started doing community theater. Um, I think his first play was Romeo and Juliet. Was he Romeo? No. Was he Mercutio? No, he was like Banquo or some shit. He then went on to study theater arts at the University of Iowa. And then after that, he was accepted at the Old Vic Theater School in England, where he became a champion fencer um, (laughs) as part of like learning how to fence as like a classically trained English actor. Sure. Well, you learn how to move and yeah. In 1957, his mother died of ovarian cancer. And Wilder returned to America to attend acting classes at the HB studio in Greenwich Village on a scholarship so that he could study um, the Stanislavski system of acting. And he made a living while attending the school on a scholarship working as a fencing instructor. Oh. After three years at HB, he heard about Lee Strasberg's method acting and so began studying at the actor's studio in Hell's Kitchen. So this guy has gone to school for acting four times. Yeah. At four different institutions. At some point, man, just just go on the stage. You'll be fine. He picked a stage name at this time because he couldn't imagine Jerry Silberman as Macbeth on like a, a theater marquee. Mm-hmm. Um, so as Gene Wilder, he began appearing on stage And in 1963, he was cast in a play opposite Anne Bancroft, who introduced him to her then-boyfriend, Mel Brooks. Brooks told Wilder that he would be perfect for the role of Leo Bloom in his screenplay, Springtime for Hitler. (laughs) Sorry, just imagining the pitch for this. Three years passed, during which time Wilder didn't hear anything at all from Brooks about this screenplay he was perfect for. Um, And Wilder got his first feature film role in 1967's Bonnie and Clyde. Mm -hmm. Then he was called up by Brooks and cast in The Producers. (laughs) So I think the thing that's like worth remembering about Gene Wilder, even though I think he is mostly remembered as a comedian for all the comedy films that he did throughout his entire career. First and foremost, he was an actor. I almost feel like he is on that border between comic and straight man. Yeah, well, and it's why his comedic roles like Willy Wonka have, like, that inner core of, like, hidden depth, right? Yeah. Like, there is really no actual depth to the character of Willy Wonka, but Wilder gave Wonka a feeling of depth because he was a real actor and could, you know, do that. (laughs) And because of that illusion of depth that Wilder gave him, that's why we've gotten like two Willy Wonka origin story type movies, you know? But yeah, like a lot of the other comedian actors of this period were comedians first, Mm -hmm. actors second. Uh, Unless you were Peter Sellers, in which case you were a comedian first who got obsessed with acting and then lost your own personality. So after the producers, Wilder moved to Paris and appeared with Donald Sutherland in the French Revolution satire, Start the Revolution Without Me, and then the film Quaxer Fortune Has a Cousin in the Bronx with Margot Kidder. 1960s comedy movies just have titles like this, like yeah. just like long-winded sentences for titles. In 1971, he was cast in the role of Willy Wonka, beating out Fred Astaire John Pertwee, Spike Milligan, and Peter Sellers, who begged 
role doll for the role. Yeah, I can see that. Fred Astaire would be interesting, but he would be too, like, normal. good. Yeah. You know, like, there needs to be something sinister, mm-hmm. and there needs to be some cynicism. Yeah. All three of these films were financial failures, um, with Willy Wonka later becoming, like, a cult hit on TV and video. Sure. But that movie was not successful when it came out. Discouraged uh, by these failures, Wilder began working on the script for Young Frankenstein, writing parts for Peter Boyle and Marty Feldman because they happened to share the same agent as him. He got Mel Brooks to direct by agreeing to be in Blazing Saddles. And while filming Young Frankenstein, Wilder got the idea for his next movie, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes' Smarter Brother, which would be his directorial debut. Mm -hmm. And I believe also features Marty Feldman and Madeline Kahn. Of course, after that, Wilder did comedy movies for years, um, mostly paired up with Richard Pryor, like they became like a known comedy duo. And then after he did one final film with Richard Pryor in the early 90s, after Pryor was really deteriorating from multiple sclerosis. And then after Pryor died, Wilder just like didn't do movies anymore. He did like some TV work through the 90s. And then he basically went into semi-retirement in the 2000s and just like focused on like painting and novels. Cool. I didn't know that. After the period, were, you know, of young Frankenstein, like starting in the late 70s, he began dating uh, SNL actress Gilda Radner. Um, and of course, she died of ovarian cancer um, in the early 90s. And Wilder himself passed away of, I believe, complications related to Alzheimer's um, in 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when he died, um, we were actually on our year late honeymoon <laughs> trip to Italy and um even there with the news of Gene Wilder's death there were cinemas playing young Frankenstein specifically mm-hmm. to like commemorate the great loss of this artist mm-hmm. uh so back to the making of this movie over a period of around six weeks Wilder and Brooks worked together to write the script for young Frankenstein over Earl Grey tea and digestive biscuits <laughs> And they would occasionally butt heads. Uh, So one such huge fight had Brooks storming out of the hotel room, yelling and, you know, a really big tantrum. Around 10 minutes later, apparently, Brooks called up Wilder and said, who was that madman? Don't let crazy people into your home. They're dangerous. (laughs) Uh, Apparently his way of apologizing. Right. Another creative difference that they had was with a sequence in Young Frankenstein with the music putting on the Ritz. Okay. Brooks didn't want it. Hmm. Uh, he was like, this is going to detract from the horror homage that we're doing. Like, it's just too out there. What are you thinking, Wilder? And Wilder argued and argued, um, apparently, like, close to tears. And so Brooks was like, okay, <laughs> you can have it. I get it. Okay. And he didn't really believe in the scene itself until he saw audience reaction to it, which was positive. Yeah, it's like one of the most famous sequences from Young Frankenstein. Like people like Young Frankenstein and they remember individual jokes. But in terms of remembering like a scene, that's the scene they remember. I'm really surprised to hear that they had that disagreement because like maybe it's it's Brooks being self-aware. But like I always felt like the weirdest part of blazing saddles is when they crash out of the like 
Western movie that they are in Mm -hmm. into like a Hollywood soundstage that's doing like a Busby Berkeley like musical thing and like start doing this totally other genre. So like it's weird to me that Brooks is over here being like, ah, we can't do this dance number. It's not horror enough. Yeah, it might have been him thinking like you know, Wilder doesn't want me in this because he doesn't want too much winking at the audience. So Mm. is this going to put it over that and just trying to, you know, keep true to Wilder's vision, even though he's helping write it. Yeah. Once they had the script in hand, Brooks and Wilder headed to Columbia Pictures to get the money. Um, So they asked for $2.8 million and the studio said "Uh, 1.7. Also, this needs to be in color for the European market and for television. And so they walked away from Columbia. Mm-hmm. Next, they went to 20th Century Fox because Brooks was friends with a newly hired producer named Michael Greskoff at the studio. And with that connection, uh, the studio said yes to the budget and to the black and white. Yeah. Um, the cinematographer for this is someone who worked with Mel Brooks on like most of his movies like brooks tend to work with the same crew over and over again but the black and white was definitely like abnormal for 1974 um but it's like a hundred percent like a huge part of how this movie is able to capture the feeling of the universal frankenstein movies absolutely like i think it was a big mistake when he did dracula dead and loving it in the 90s that it's not in black and white Um, Well, because it's ripping on coppola it's ripping on coppola and the lugosi version at the same time yeah which Anyways, um, <laughs> I do want to say that producer, uh, Gruskoff, has like a really weird, interesting career. He went on to produce movies like Werner Herzog's Nosferatu the Vampire, starring Klaus Kinski. <laughs> and he also produced Quest for Fire. Amazing. Um, yeah. Neat guy. Mm-hmm. This is very early in his career. This is like one of the first movies he ever produces. Yeah. Now, like you said, uh, Black and white movies were very much not on trend in 1974. It was color all the time. So uh, in some very early trailers uh, that has Brooks narrating, like, it's young Frankenstein, come watch it. He um, says, it's in black and white. No offense. (laughs) Now, as they were writing it, you know, Wilder has kind of the main vision. Brooks, who has written scripts before, is saying, like, here's how to kind of get words to paper and he has said quote i didn't want it to just be funny or silly i wanted shelley's basic feelings captured and the haunting beautiful quality james will got with Karloff. my movies are not about jokes they are about behavior and behavior can be very funny mm-hmm. end quote so like i said um thanks to wilder's agent um marty feldman and peter boyle were in mind when writing um and so igor specifically was written with marty feldman in mind uh, i believe this is his first american film so marty feldman or martin feldman as his birth name uh was born in london on july 8th 1934 he was the son of a jewish immigrant from the ukraine he had a rare thyroid disorder Um, which caused his eyes to protrude out from his face and become like misaligned. So he basically had these like bug eyes that pointed in different directions. Um, However, Feldman actually attributed his career success to his unique appearance. 
uh, believing that it won him more movie roles than if he had been handsome um, because it made him unique and stand out in people's minds. Um, he also said that it never caused him any problems like with getting romantic relationships <laughs> um, because women seemed to be attracted to him for his sense of humor. Sure. He dropped out of school at age 15 to become a jazz musician. Okay. But he gave that up and switched his aspirations to comedy by age 20 um, because he decided that he was like the worst jazz trumpeter to ever <laughs> perform. <laughs> Feldman made appearances on British television and on radio and also worked as a comedy writer becoming well-regarded as a writer as part of a partnership with fellow comedian Barry Took. His star found itself on the rise following his appearance in the cast of a sketch comedy show called At Last the 1948 Show, which ran for two series in 1967. Um, the other members of the cast of that show were Graham Chapman, John Cleese, and Tim Brooke Taylor. Um, so this would have been pre-Monty Python. Mm hmm after at last the 1948 show the bbc gave tim brooke taylor the show the goodies they gave chapman and cleese monty python and they gave feldman his own starring vehicle which ran through four incarnations like it had a different title every season um marty it's marty the marty feldman comedy machine and marty back together again <laughs> young frankenstein was his first film role and after Young Frankenstein, he appeared in, like, a number of comedy features. Um, among these comedy features, uh, Feldman had his directorial debut with the film The Last Remake of Bo Guest, um, which he also starred in. And I looked up, and it is actually the last feature film version of Bo Guest, so that's good. Um, but he passed away of a heart attack in 1982 at age 48, so he doesn't really have the like long lasting career of some of the other people in this movie. Like I think to a modern audience that doesn't like remember him from those BBC shows, which like the BBC didn't keep copies of its shows back in the day. So they mm -hmm. don't get rerun. I think for most people, he's just Igor in young Frankenstein. Yeah. Alongside uh, Marty Feldman was Peter Boyle brought on to be the creature uh, now, he is already a tall man, um, but he was given lifts in order to be over six foot seven. Apparently, uh, Brooks wanted him to be intimidating, but not repulsive. Mm. Uh, tell us about Peter Boyle. Sure. So Peter Boyle's not a comedian. Yes. Uh, he's a character actor. Uh, he was born on October 18th, 1935 in Pennsylvania. And actually, his father, Francis, was like a local TV personality oh, neat. in the 50s, like just on like local, like the kind of thing where like he was the host of like the kitty show on Saturday mornings. But he was like also the host of like the late night show and also did like the breakfast show, like that kind of era of television. Mm -hmm. Peter attended Catholic schools growing up and spent three years at LaSalle University working on a Bachelor of Arts degree before deciding that he did not feel that like the religious life suited him. Um, so he did not become a priest. He instead was commissioned an ensign in the U S Navy in 1959. Uh, but he left following a nervous breakdown. Mm. He then studied acting at the HB studio in Greenwich village in New York, 
before joining Second City in Chicago. Um, And then he had his first small movie role in 1969. His first starring role was in 1970s Joe, playing a bigoted factory worker, um, which was highly critically acclaimed, though Boyle was later a bit disturbed when he found out that there were audiences who, like, didn't understand you weren't supposed to like the character. Oh, yeah. That's always the danger with things like that. Following the critical acclaim from that role, he soon began appearing in a variety of character roles in a lot of, like, acclaimed dramas. You know, he would play gangsters and cab drivers and cab drivers and gangsters and um isn't he a cab driver in uh the shadow that's correct yes (laughs) so young frankenstein was his first comedic role and while shooting the film uh he met rolling stone journalist lorraine alterman and then through her became friends with yoko ono and john lennon Uh, And then John Lennon would serve as best man at Peter Boyle's wedding to Lorraine in 1977. Mm -hmm. Um, And Boyle said that he played the creature as a baby, just like a big, dumb baby who doesn't understand the world and is seeing the world for the first time. Yeah, (laughs) that uh, I would agree with that approach. Uh, Boyle would go on to continue to play a variety of character roles throughout his life, but he's probably best known to like modern audiences now as having been the grandfather on Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah. Now, even though that this was in black and white, um, green makeup was used on Boyle for that kind of dead look, Mm -hmm. similar to how they did Karloff's makeup. When he is brought back to life or brought to life, the crew made a fiberglass model of Boyle's head that had built-in lights, um, as well as like fake brain and teeth material, so that it could light up with electricity, um, and he would not be like electrocuted. That's how they did that. Okay, cool. Yeah. There's another moment where um, he has uh, a fake thumb with alcohol in it so that uh, his thumb can be on fire. Oh, huh. That's how they did that. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Uh, Now, as Ben said, um, this was Boyle's first comedic role, but he wound up being pretty happy with it because uh, one day there was a uh, Rolling Stone magazine writer brought onto set to cover the making of Young Frankenstein. Um, her name was Lorraine Alterman, and uh, they would meet and eventually be married. Cute story. It's a very cute story, Ben. Which is why I repeated it. <laughs> so we have some main characters, our main male characters. We got the boys. We got the boys. Let's get the girls. When it came to casting the female characters... We have Inga, like a female Igor, basically. Elizabeth, Mm -hmm. makes sense. And a Frau Blucher. (laughs) Tell us about Cloris Leachman. Who is she? Right, so Cloris Leachman plays Frau Blucher, who is kind of, sort of based on um, the character in Bride of Frankenstein, who's like the household maidservant who's played by that actress who's like whole shtick 
was being like Irish and afraid in and Universal. Shrill. Yeah, and shrill in Universal horror movies. But they go in like a totally different direction with the young Frankenstein version of the character. Like I'm pretty sure she originates from that personage in Bride of Frankenstein. But like while that character was the comic relief in a horror movie, Frau Blucher is like a straight man in the comedy movie. Now, Cloris Leachman was born on April 30th, 1926 in Iowa, and she competed in the Miss America pageant in 1946. And following that, she began to get offers for film and television work. She was accepted on a scholarship to the Actors Studio in Hell's Kitchen, and she appeared on stage through the early 1950s, um, but started to get like TV roles here and there including appearing as the mom on Lassie for half a season before being replaced by June Lockhart due to contract disputes. Mm. Did they explain that in Lassie? Like, Lassie, the last mom fell down the well and you didn't tell us. No, it's like supposed to be the same character. Okay. Yeah. Her first major film role was in the 1955 film noir Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, But she continued to be a regular presence on television through the 1960s, along with like the occasional film role like um, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in 1969 and The Last Picture Show with Peter Bogdanovich directing in 1971. But her major claim to fame before Young Frankenstein uh, was the role of Phyllis Lindstrom on the sitcom The Mary Tyler Moore Show beginning in 1970, um, which would actually lead to her getting her own spinoff. Phyllis from 1975 to 1977. Uh, Young Frankenstein was the first of three collaborations she did with Mel Brooks. And she actually wanted to reprise her role as Frau Blucher in the 2007 Broadway version, but she was turned down because it was felt she was too old at age 81, which she took offense at. I don't blame her. And she passed away on January 27th, 2021 at age 94 this year yeah wow i guess during filming she did ask brooks like why why do the horses neigh right and he was like oh it's because blucher means glue in german correct it doesn't though what it doesn't mean glue what is it okay it doesn't mean anything huh for the roles of inga and elizabeth the actresses Terry Garr and Madeline Kahn were cast, but originally Kahn had gone for Inga and Garr had gone for Elizabeth. I can totally see that being how they were originally arranged, like Mm -hmm. with Madeline Kahn doing the like ditzy accented role after what she did in Blazing Saddles and Garr being the like good looking love interest and not necessarily in the like comedic part. Yeah, Uh, Gar was among 500 actresses who auditioned for Elizabeth, but in the end, Brooks chose Khan. But he liked Gar so much, he told her, you know, Inga is yours if tomorrow you can come back with a German accent. (laughs) Right on the spot, she gave him a German accent, um, apparently based on uh, Cher's wig maker from uh, her time working on the 1971 Cher and Sunny Comedy Hour. <laughs> so Terry Garr was born on December 11th, 1944 in Cleveland, Ohio. Her father was vaudevillian Eddie Garr and her mother was Rockette Phyllis Garr. 
Her father died when she was 11, and her mother put her in dancing school to train her as a ballerina. Uh, After high school, she went to New York to study acting at the Actors Studio in Hell's Kitchen, and a choreographer named David Winters uh, took her under his wing, uh, became her mentor, and so she won most of her early jobs as a dancer in film and television due to his involvement. So she appeared a lot as like a background dancer or like a go-go dancer in club scenes or like, like a bunch of Elvis Presley movies. She's just like a background dancer. <laughs> um, her first speaking role in a feature film was in the Monkees movie Head from 1968, which is a wild fucking movie. Um, and her first major TV role was in an episode of Star Trek intended as a backdoor pilot for a series called Assignment Earth, which never happened. She had a supporting role in Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation in 1974, and that was basically followed by her role in Young Frankenstein. Uh, And her star really took off after this. Like, this was kind of her big break. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, major movies that people would know her from after this would include, like, She's the Wife in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Um, But her career would slow down significantly in the 1990s following her diagnosis with multiple sclerosis. Mm. What about Madeline Kahn? So Madeline Kahn was born Madeline Gale Wolfson on September 29th, 1942 in Boston, Massachusetts. When she was 11 years old, her mother remarried to a man named Hiller Kahn, who then adopted Madeline, hence the name change. And uh, Khan earned a drama scholarship to Hofstra University and graduated with a degree in speech therapy. To earn money while she was in college, she worked as a singing waitress at a Bavarian restaurant. (laughs) Um, And there was like a wealthy Italian who would come in and patronize the restaurant who like the restaurant couldn't afford to lose his business. And he insisted or requested that Khan sing like opera arias for him so instead of doing like show tune numbers she started to learn how to sing opera okay and her first lead role in something was in a 1968 performance of the opera candide in honor of its composer leonard bernstein's 50th birthday neat yeah um from there she began appearing in broadway musicals she made her feature film debut in the Barbara Streisand comedy What's Up, Doc? in 1972. Her next role was 1973's Paper Moon, directed by Peter Bogdanovich, and that earned her an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress. And then she would be nominated again the next year for Blazing Saddles. Yes. After Young Frankenstein, she appeared in two more Mel Brooks films. And after a long career, she passed away of ovarian cancer in 1999. Mm-hmm. In my head, she's a frequent Brooks collaborator. Well, I mean, so she did Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, High Anxiety, and History of the World Part One, which is four Brooks films. Mm-hmm. Gene Wilder did The Producers, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein. That's three. And then, like, I feel like Brooks's other really common collaborators are, like, what you would call, like, his stock company of sure. supporting actors, as well as, like, his crew. He would sort of work with the same crew over and over again. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those stock character actors um, is Kenneth Mars, who plays Inspector Kemp in this movie. 
uh, which is a role that's like basically just copy pasted from Inspector Krogh played by Lionel Atwell in Son of Frankenstein. Yes. To the point where when we saw Son of Frankenstein, we were like, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. This makes so much more sense now. Right, exactly. And like both actors do a really good job with the like physical acting required for the role. And the way that young Frankenstein translates that into physical comedy is really, really good. Yes. Now, Kenneth Mars had already appeared in The Producers where he played Franz Liebkind, the writer of Springtime for Hitler. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, But he was a character actor. And in his later career, he was mostly a voice actor. And his most famous voice role that he is identified with is King Triton from The Little Mermaid and all of its spinoff media. All of it. Like he plays King Triton on the TV show. He plays King Triton in the direct-to-DVD sequels and prequels, and he plays King Triton in the Kingdom Hearts video games. So as you said, Terry Gar had just come off the conversation. Right. Uh, 1974. There was one day where Mel Brooks's wife, Anne Bancroft, visited set, and she saw Terry Gar, and she was like, oh, hey, how's it going? By the way, we saw the conversation last night, and Gar said, oh, yeah, that turned out to be a pretty good movie. And Bancroft replied, honey, this is a movie. The conversation is a film. (laughs) Speaking of the conversation, that movie stars Gene Hackman. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, he and Wilder frequently played tennis together. Huh. And that is how he learned about Young Frankenstein. Uh, Now, Hackman wanted to give comedy a try, so he's like, you know what, I'll play the blind man as a cameo. You don't have to pay me anything. (laughs) So he did four days shooting on that. Yeah, people talk about Hackman's role as a cameo because it's only one scene. Yeah. Um, But it is like him doing the blind man from Bride of Frankenstein, which is a very memorable part. Yeah. and like you said, it's four days shooting. Like, it's not the kind of thing where it's not like a Stan Lee cameo where he comes on for like one line of dialogue and leaves. And you're like, was that Gene Hackman? Um, <laughs> like, it's a full role in the picture. Yeah, it's wild that he did it for no money. But I guess that's probably the only way they could have afforded him in 1974. Because Gene Hackman's kind of a big deal. He's kind of a big deal to the point where like every time I watch this, I'm like, oh, shit. Yeah, Gene Hackman is in this movie. Um, so I guess even though he only had four days on set, Gene Hackman made quite an effect on the cast and crew, um, really cracking them up with some of the ways that he he was improving lines. His last line before that scene ends is, but I was going to make espresso. Right. Uh, and that was ad-libbed. Um, now in the movie, it fades to black, like right quick after that, because, after he said it, everyone burst into la- <laughs> into laughter, um, and they just could not do a second take without Hackman laughing right. and ruining it. Right. So they had to go with the original take and just cut it real close. <laughs> right. I guess laughing on set was like a thing that Brooks was like used to and kind of had a plan for. But it was never as bad as on Young Frankenstein to the point where he went out and bought 200 handkerchiefs, handed them out to the crew, the cast, 
uh, and said, you know, if, if you're not in front of the camera and you find yourself to start laughing, stuff the handkerchief in your face. Stop it. Yeah. Uh, and there were a, fa- a few times as he's filming, he would look back and everyone has the handkerchief in their faces. Yeah. In the original theatrical release, uh, Gene Hackman wasn't credited because it was just like an unpaid cameo. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like meant to be a surprise that he's in it. Um, now, a person who was credited uh, was through a special thanks to Ken Strickfaden. Right. During production... Brooks was like, oh, shit, he's still around and gave him a call, uh, hoping to get some of the old equipment uh, to really further that authenticity. Um, then when he gave Ken a call, he was like, oh, yeah, I still have all that stuff in my garage. Yeah, because all of that stuff was his stuff. Like yeah. it wasn't universals. He supplied it all. And then like, you know, all those mad scientist movies we watched ripped it off. Well, or if they needed that gear, they called him. Yeah. To supply it. So Ken Strickfaden was brought on as a technical consultant. Um, he set up his existing stuff, recreated some different things, and even made some new versions of this uh, classic equipment. That being said, uh, that's kind of the only like reused thing um, in Young Frankenstein, uh, as Universal would have like gotten rid of all of the other sets. The principal set was built on stage five at 20th Century Fox and uh, took up about 15,000 square feet and was 35 feet high. Photography took the course of 54 days uh, from February to May 1974 to be released December 15th, 1974, getting in just under the wire. Right. Now, after it was released, Young Frankenstein did run into some problems with the Writers Guild of America. Hmm. Issues arose at first because, um, so Young Frankenstein has a very iconic poster. Right. Um, which was designed by Anthony Goldschmidt, who actually did the Blazing Saddles poster as well. Yeah, it's a similar art style. And the posters and everything was, had the tagline, a Mel Brooks film with no mention of the writer. Hmm. And so the WGA filed a suit to 20th Century Fox um, saying like, hey, you can't do that. Also, in the credits, you have director and producer listed twice in the opening and end credits, but writer is only mentioned once. And in all of this marketing material, the writer is mentioned in smaller text. Further, you violated the WGA contract because none of these marketing materials were submitted to us for approval in advance. Now, to jump in here real quick, the reason putting a Mel Brooks film would be problematic um, is sort of twofold. One is that typically that credit is used for if the writer and director are the same person. For Mm -hmm. example, Star Wars is a George Lucas film. Um, Citizen Kane is an Orson Welles film. Um, But also one of the things that Guild Arbitration has to work against is like they're working to get people credit and working to get people their due. And so they have to work against sometimes like audience assumptions because Mel Brooks typically wrote the movies he directed an audience seeing a Mel Brooks film is definitely just going to assume that he wrote it. So that's the main thing they're fighting against here. Absolutely. Now the studio countered and said, well, in the credits, there's only like 
it's only necessary to mention the writer once. So what, what you do in WGA. Um, but ultimately, um, mainly due to the contract violation of the marketing materials, mm-hmm. um, the WGA won and uh, got a settlement of $10,000, of which Wilder received seven. And that is a total of $55,000 today, with Wilder receiving 39000 mm. It's interesting that, like, they didn't, like, Wilder didn't bring the suit. Like he didn't no, go the to the WGA. Like he didn't go to the guild for arbitration because he was upset. Like the guild on its own was like, "Hey, wait a minute, you can't do this," and like filed on his behalf. Yeah, um, I guess the WGA was like, you know, this is a, a dangerous trend that Hollywood is leading into, where mm-hmm. the writer is not being valued. Yeah. Um. So it was really like an opportunity to be like, guys, don't forget about the writer, not like Wilder being upset about right. anything. Despite the WGA incident, Young Frankenstein was very well received. As you said, it had a $2.8 million budget and made $80 million at the box office. Wilder and Brooks received an Academy Award nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay. The picture also got a nomination for Best Sound, which lost to a film called Earthquake. Cloris Leachman, uh, who played Frau Blücher, um, and Madeline Kahn... Uh, playing Elizabeth, both received Golden Globe nominations for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress, respectively. And the screenplay was nominated uh, to the WGA for Best Comedy Adaptation from Another Medium. Wilder, uh, while he was alive, Gene Wilder has said that this is his favorite film that he's ever done, with the Abby Normal scene <laughs> being his favorite. Uh, for Brooks, he has said that Young Frankenstein is the best movie I ever made. Um, as far as contemporary reviews, uh, I'll just note that Roger Ebert gave this film four out of four stars. <laughs> I did take a quick look on Rotten Tomatoes. Overall, very good scores there. Um, and I liked this one quote uh, that's from 2019 uh, from Empire Magazine by a critic named Adam Smith. Um, quote, What Young Frankenstein demonstrates is that for spoof to work, the spoofers must have a deep affection for the material, Mm -hmm. end quote. In 2007, Young Frankenstein did receive a musical adaptation on Broadway. Um, That's because Mel Brooks did a musical adaptation of The Producers in 2001. It was hugely successful, so he was like, dope, let's do my other big picture. Yeah. Um, And it has also been very well received on Broadway. Yeah. And that brings us to today. <laughs> if uh, you would like to watch along, you can stream Young Frankenstein on Crave or Stars in Canada and in the United States on Direct TV. Not very widely available to stream, I guess. Yeah, it, it, which is weird to me. This is, mm. seems like a big movie, right? right. Um, it has been released on DVD and Blu-ray uh, a few times. The very <laughs> first was in 1998, got a DVD release uh, again in 2006. And then for the 40th anniversary of the film in 2014, it got a DVD and Blu-ray release. I think I have that 2006 DVD. I don't okay. think I shelled out for the, the, the 40th anniversary Blu-ray a few years ago. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, so that's how we will be watching it. Yeah, I'm excited to watch this movie with you. It's always a good time. This is my first time re-watching it after having seen all of these classic Universal pictures. Oh, okay. Neat. Yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty stoked. 
honestly. Folks, if you would like to watch along, hopefully you can find a copy. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Young Frankenstein from 1974, directed by Mel Brooks. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everyone, to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Young Frankenstein from 1974, directed by Mel Brooks. Sarah, how you doing? Good. Um, So like I said before, we sat down to watch this. This is my first time seeing it, having now seen all of the Universal Frankensteins. Sure. Um, Not my first time seeing the movie itself. And... Yeah, still like a good amount of enjoyment from it. Uh, it's it's a bit of a dumb movie. Like, oh, I yeah. do like this movie, but like <laughs> so many sex jokes. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of sexual humor for sure. Yeah. What about you? Uh, any new thoughts having, you know, seen it now after watching all of these other movies? I think this is the first time I've really picked up the things in Young Frankenstein that reference like some of the lesser known universal movies, Mm -hmm. like the stuff that references Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein is pretty obvious. But, you know, as we kind of said, when we watched Son of Frankenstein, this movie is mostly Son of Frankenstein, like in terms of its skeleton. Absolutely. Like, and it makes sense given the idea of like a son returns and he doesn't want to be part of this family. Right. But he still gets drawn in. Like that's the same premise. Yeah, and um, I think it might work in Young Frankenstein's favor in culture writ large that it feels like people don't talk about Son of Frankenstein as much as the first two. Like, Frankenstein has this reputation as this big horror classic, and then Bride of Frankenstein has this reputation as, like, one of the few sequels that's better than the original. And no one really talks about Son that often i think because it's not james whale probably because it's not james whale and then it came like several years later and it also probably gets lumped in with the ghost of frankenstein Mm -hmm. frankenstein meets the wolfman like all of the movies that come after that are like drastically going downhill yeah for sure but you know son of frankenstein is very very good Mm -hmm. but because it's not as well known as the first two I think a lot of people don't realize how much Young Frankenstein is pulling from it, which may work in Young Frankenstein's favor. The other thing, watching it this time, I was sort of like bracing myself for humor that wasn't going to age well. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really find any, which was a nice surprise. Like, I was pleasantly surprised by how much of this movie still works. Yeah. Well, how about I give a plot synopsis and then we can kind of dive into what works, what doesn't work and uh, overall feelings of the movie. Yeah, for sure. Go right ahead. So we have a Dr. Frederick Frankenstein, um, who is a neurosurgeon and um, he gives lectures at universities and he's a bit of a showman 
when he gives these lectures, both for comedic effect, but also, I think, for character effect, which is why I'm mentioning it here. Now, Frederick is very ashamed of his association with the Frankenstein legacy uh, that comes from his grandfather, Victor Frankenstein, um, but he gets drawn back into the family estate in Transylvania uh, thanks to the will of his great-grandfather. Um, so this would be Victor's father. Basically, it gets read, and it's like everything gets to go to Frederick, um, so he has to come to the estate to deal with everything. Now, um, he does have a fiance, Elizabeth, and it's two weeks to their wedding. Um, but he's like, don't worry, I'll be back in like 10 days. It'll be fine. So uh, the person who approached him to bring him back to the estate has arranged for an assistant to meet him. Her name is Inga. And uh, an assistant slash servant named Igor <laughs> And as they make their way to the castle of Frankenstein, they meet Frau Blücher, uh, who is their housekeeper, and we learn uh, had an affair with Victor Frankenstein. Through the use of violin music, Frederick gets lured down to the secret laboratory and discovers the book How I Did It by <laughs> Victor Frankenstein. <laughs> now, Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder would not have been able to prophesize this but definitely has some oj simpson feels right yeah anyways so now that he has this like how-to guide uh he gets drawn in and decides no i'm going to make a creature i'm going to redeem our reputation our family's reputation so they find a hanged man and then he sends igor out for a brain at the brain depository <laughs> they were hoping to get hans delbruck uh, which is a real scientist uh, and, like, genius kind of guy. But, you know, mishaps happen, and Igor brings back the abnormal brain instead. So they do the experiment, and um, it works. Uh, the creature has been brought back to life. He can't speak, so he just is doing the kind of thing. Um, now, poor timing. Uh, this happens, right, as uh, Inspector Kemp arrives uh inspector kemp has been sent by the local villagers to go and make sure that frankenstein isn't pulling a frankenstein right they end up like you know appeasing him saying like no inspector like everything's fine go on your merry way and as they're dealing with the inspector frau blucher releases the creature uh she clearly is like she was clearly involved in the original creature's creation um and she's like go be free, like, finally, Victor's realization has been achieved. She's very invested. Very invested. So now the creature's on the loose. Um, we get some fun callbacks to the original where, like, he meets a little girl, um, doesn't throw her down the well or into a lake or anything, uh, but does, you know, catapult her through a seesaw back into her room just in time for her parents to arrive. And then we also meet the blind man, played by Gene Hackman, and doesn't learn, like, kindness or how to speak from him, because uh, the blind man is a klutz uh, joke about ableism. <laughs> um, eventually, uh, the creature gets lured back to the castle through the use of this violin lullaby music. Frederick is like, okay, we can't just let him go on a rampage, Um because it's not his fault that he has a bad brain. So we have to show him that we love him 
and teach him through that love. Right. We have to show parental responsibility for this life form that we've created. Exactly. Uh, so then we get um, a putting on the Ritz kind of thing because <laughs> Frederick is like, okay, I love you. You're my son. Um, and also in that scene, he is like, I am a Frankenstein. Like he fully takes on his family's legacy. Um, but he's still a showman. So he wheels out the creature to an audience to show like, look what I've created and is still trying to redeem his family's legacy. But it definitely is of the vibe of like, my child, you shall perform for my friends now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you fuck up or if you don't do it, you're getting um, disciplined. Like, it's, right. don't do not do this to me. Right, right? yeah, yeah. Um, so of course everything goes awry and the creature escapes again. He does get chained up by the villagers, but then manages to escape from that. He escapes so easily that like, it feels like he just let himself be chained because he's trying to like be good and behave because <laughs> he gets goaded into breaking his chains and it's like not very difficult for him to break out. No. So Frederick is like, hey, I need to figure out how to equalize these impulses he has from his bad brain as he's trying to figure that out he and inga end up uh having some relations Mm, they have some intellectual discussions yes just in time for elizabeth to arrive uh to check in on her fiance now elizabeth has also arrived because the creature is on the rampage and she needs to be kidnapped right yeah which the creature does and uh they have sex Yes. It's a bit of a, um, he's going for her and she's saying like, no, no, yes, yes, kind of 1974 sexual politics. And uh, we, can, we can talk about it yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll very, talk about I'm it I'm very later. interested in talking about that later. But, you know, finally, one of these universal monsters who carts off a lady in a white nightgown into the night, like finally gets what they're after. Yep. Once again, they lure the creature back using music, and Frederick has come up with this idea of we're going to do a transference, basically, of my intelligence into him. I'll become dumber, but he'll become, like, smarter, so then he's not going to be... It should balance out. Yeah, exactly. Now, the villagers create a mob and attack the castle uh, before that transference can be completed. The creature does manage to get the power of speech, at this time, and he um, wags his finger at the villagers being like, you guys are awful. Like, why are you doing this? Uh, I just went on a rampage because everyone hated me, and so I wanted to make everyone else feel bad. Kind of in line with uh, the creature's motivations from the original novel, which is fun. He gives a very eloquent speech. Yes, um, because he can now finally speak. And the villagers go, oh, our bad, (laughs) and they leave leading the creature Inga and Igor to now take care of Frederick, uh, whose fate has not been determined yet. But by the next scene, we see that Fred is uh, doing just fine, and he has just wed Inga because Elizabeth uh, has become the bride of the creature, complete with the hairdo (laughs) and everything. Um, And the film ends with Inga going, huh, so like the creature got intelligence but what did you get in the transference and he he got a big dick yes because the creature being seven foot tall all of his uh body parts and organs are proportionally sized yes so fred is now well hung the creature is now smart 
and all is well at Castle Frankenstein. Yes. So a dumb movie, (laughs) but fun. Yeah. A Uh, lot of fun. Yes. And I don't mean for this to happen when we watch old movies, but Gene Wilder in makeup is hot. Yeah. (laughs) Like, oh man, just give, give a man some eyelashes and I'll just be swooning all day. (laughs) Yeah. You like a man with eyeliner. Yes. (laughs) You can blame My Chemical Romance for that, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Gene Wilder's a handsome guy. Yeah. Anyways, I will say that one of my favorite jokes in this movie is it happens early. I just love shit like this. As they're heading towards Castle Frankenstein, uh, they hear a wolf howl and Inga goes, oh, no, a werewolf. Fred is like a werewolf and Igor is like there wolf their castle (laughs) (laughs) yeah um one of the things in this movie's favor is that most of the jokes still land yeah the jokes in this movie are very memorable um a lot of them have been like riffed on in the years since by other things Mm -hmm. like like aerosmith based an entire song off a joke from this movie yeah walk this way yeah um some of the humor is a little obvious uh like the movie what knockers yeah the movie will go for obvious jokes and it's also i noticed rare that brooks will let a subtle joke stand when he can like point to it and then point to the camera and say see it's a joke (laughs) um like there's a scene taken right out of son of frankenstein where frederick and inspector kemp are playing darts and uh kemp tries to like throw off frederick's game by like every time he goes to throw a dart being like and you are a frankenstein and the creature is dangerous and like yelling every time this happens so like he misses like wildly and some of his darts like go out the window and all this kind of stuff and then when when the inspector leaves we cut outside and he gets in the car and in the wide shot you can see that the car's tires have been punctured with darts darts. and the tires are flat and that there's like a dart in like the driver's hat and stuff and just as you're like oh that's funny that's clever um the car starts to drive away and the camera zooms in on the flat tires you know just to make sure you don't miss the joke yeah but you know other than a few cultural references that are a little lost on a modern audience there's very little here that provokes like a, a a yikes feeling Like, most of this movie holds up really well. Um, There isn't really any, like, egregious racial humor Mm -hmm. or, like, punching down. Um, Primarily because, like, everyone's in on the joke, right? Like, even the jokes that are, like, making fun of Igor and his appearance, like, Marty Feldman is 100% in on all of those jokes. Yeah. Right? And he's able to, like, punch back as well. Yeah, exactly. And, like, Marty Feldman was a guy who, like, Made a career out of his appearance. Right. Like knew what he was working with here, you know? Yeah. And that's really nice when you can recommend a comedy from nearly 50 years ago. Oh, God. <laughs> and and say like, hey, most of this still works, right? Sure. Like the, if there are jokes that are a little groan worthy, it's because they're like very obvious jokes, not because they're like unfortunate. Yeah. The jokes... And humor that 
don't quite land. And even when I saw this, like I said, when I was like 12, so too young, I was like, kind of like, I don't really get this is um, the sexual humor with the creature going at Elizabeth the first time. Hmm. I mean, there's a lot of sexual humor in this movie. Like, if anything, like, Frederick and Elizabeth's, like, sexual psychology is, like, a surprisingly large, Mm -hmm. like, portion of this movie. Um, So I am interested in talking to you about this, particularly because... Since the last time I saw this movie, I had a friend who was working uh, in a like minor capacity on a production of the stage version of Young Frankenstein, and she got super upset about the stuff with Elizabeth and the monster. Like she was so like morally incensed about like how could we be putting something like this on in in 2020 or whatever. And she was like super upset. And and I remember talking to her and being like, I don't really remember anything like that in the movie. She was like, yeah, it glorifies abusive relationships. It's sexist. It's racist. It glorifies rape. It, you know, is, is rape apology. Uh, you know, it reinforces negative tropes about women and, you know, that frigid bitches deserve what's coming to them. And I was like, I don't remember fucking any of this in the movie. So I was really on the lookout for it. This time around, mm-hmm. and well, I want to I want to hear your thoughts on it first before I comment. Okay, so Elizabeth is when we first meet her, um, she's saying goodbye to Fred as he goes onto the train, and the joke is that like she's like, no, don't kiss me on the lips. I don't want to smear my lipstick. I'm going to a party. No, don't touch the hair. Like I just did it. Uh, no, don't hug me too tight. My taffeta dress, and. It's like the joke is kind of like, like they clearly care for each other, but she's kind of like putting up these boundaries for, uh, you know, cause she's going to a party. Like, so maybe kind of a superficial, I guess, reading, but it, to me, I read that as like trying to portray Elizabeth as being like a little superficial, not frigid. And then even when she comes back to visit Fred at the castle, uh, they go to kiss and she says no tongues. The joke is not that she's frigid, but that um, she's putting up boundaries and Fred is like overly horny. When she gets kidnapped by the creature, the ex- I'll say excuses that she's giving to the creature of like, no, we can't have sex is like, I'm expecting a very important call. It's like, a joke on oh, the, the reasons that women will give that a guy can't stay over. Um, I have to get up early in the morning. I have a headache. That it's, sort of it's, thing. It's the baby it's cold outside routine. Yeah. Um, and actually, that's a great way to kind of explain what's going on. Because that song can be read as an example of rape culture. But it can also be read as a product of its time for women having to play that line of like, I do actually want this, but I can't show that I actually want this because there's, you know, many readings of, of that song in particular on both those sides. And that's because our 2021 understanding of sexual politics and rape culture is different than it was when that song was written and definitely different than 1974. 
coming out near the end of August, so it might be out by the time that this bonus episode is out, um, I guessed on a podcast called Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine, and we talk about the 1971 film Duck You Sucker. Uh, if you know that film, it opens um, within like the te- first 10 minutes of a sexual assault, um, and I try to explain in that episode how the director, the writer, the actors involved are trying to make it seem like it's not actually a sexual assault, that the woman involved is into it. Uh, Consent is definitely in question, which is why I still call it a sexual assault, but it's not a rape. And that is, again, how I would kind of categorize this scene in Young Frankenstein. What are your thoughts? Well, I think one of the things that are messaging about rape culture and like the very good efforts that have been made to like bring attention to that culture to bring attention to the kind of way that people are apologists for rapists the way that like our culture has not got very good ways of like talking about this and stuff that's all been really important in the last few years and you know not blaming the victim and not blaming the woman for how she dressed or how she acted you know like oh she wanted it like blah, blah. like that's all really important and good i think that because of how strong that messaging has been it's made it difficult to talk about people who want in their sexual experiences to feel like taken Mm-hmm. people who want to feel like they're being used because that's like a thing that people want. A lot of times morality is like super important, obviously <laughs> in terms of governing how we act, mm-hmm. but it has a bad habit of putting a muzzle on what we can talk about and how we talk about things mm-hmm. and, and being able to talk about things, frankly. Um, no Frankenstein. Right. Um, sorry. So the thing about Elizabeth mm-hmm. and the way I kind of read her whole shtick and, and the thing is, is I think baby it's cold outside is another great example of this because the thing about baby it's cold outside and whether you read it as like creepy or charming has very little to do with the lyrics. Like people will be like, Oh, what's this line about what's in this drink and run and it has everything to do with the performers and how exactly. they are performing the piece. So when I talked to my friend about Young Frankenstein, and and granted, she was going off of like the script for the musical. I haven't seen the musical. I don't know what, you know, in making a musical of this movie, you have to turn like 30 second lines of dialogue into like four minute long songs. So I don't really know like what gets emphasized versus Mm de-emphasized in that translation. And also the actors that she sees performing it. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of asterisks with that yeah exactly um i don't think young frankenstein should have been made into a musical just as like a quick sidebar it made sense for the producers because the producers was a movie about putting on a stage musical young frankenstein is an homage to classic movies so a lot of what makes young frankenstein work doesn't work on stage but anyways a lot of what can make certain material work is the actors performing it And it's worth remembering that Young Frankenstein was kind of written with the actors who are in it in mind. Mm -hmm. Like Wilder and Brooks had already worked with Madeline Kahn. They knew what kind of material she could pull off. Mm -hmm. 
my reading of Elizabeth based on the holistic picture of the movie, you know, the script and the performance and everything, is Elizabeth is a tease. And that's, you know, I think ultimately originally what the um, the sheep or the mouse part in um, Baby It's Cold Outside is supposed to be read as as well. Like the thing about Elizabeth is the gag with her. I don't think Victor is extremely horny. I think Victor is extremely sexually frustrated because he's got this sexy fiance who keeps like leading him on and then sort of like putting up walls. My reading of Madeline Kahn's performance is that she gets off on that, Mm -hmm. that she likes teasing him, that she likes, that she knows full well what she's doing. Yeah. Elizabeth wants that control. Yeah. Cause she'll, she'll tease him with things like, Oh, well your, your bedroom's just down the hall if I get scared. But then he'll be like, well, why don't I just stay in your bed with you? And she's like, Oh no, 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 no. You know, she makes it into this thing about, like, we're not going to have sex until we're married. But, like, the way she goes on about it, Elizabeth does not read to me as, like, a virgin concerned with image of innocence and propriety. Because that's not how Madeline Kahn plays her. her. Elizabeth is, like, like, and I know that this is being exaggerated for comedy, but that's the thing about it, too. You have to remember... This is a comedy. So all of these things are being exaggerated and also like aren't supposed to be read maliciously because it's supposed to be funny. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she's like lying back on the bed, arms spread, kind of in this like take me sort of pose. And she's like, would you want me now like this so soon before our wedding? And he's like, yeah. (laughs) Um, And it's clear to me that Victor is very sexually frustrated. And that's clear from the scene on the train platform. And it's clear that she's leading him on. And from the conversation they have at the castle, where she talks about like how he's like mommy's little good boy and stuff. I think you're right about she gets off on the control Mm -hmm. and she wants to feel in charge. And she likes... um, kind of not so much humiliating him as like mm, and not quite so much as like emasculating him but definitely she likes sort of having him under her heel Mm -hmm. you know she likes kind of being able to like wave the treat in his face that he's never going to get so that she can feel big yeah and so with all of that That informs how we have to understand, like, Inga and Victor's relationship. How, by the time, like, even when he just gets to Transylvania, he's already sexually frustrated. And hasn't been able to, like, have any kind of release of those feelings. And Inga has, like, clearly kind of fallen in love with him. Has, like, a lot of affection for him. And so, you know, there's this way of looking at the relationship where it's like, oh, he cheats on his fiance. And it's like, that's not really quite the way to think about that either. Because when you just say it like that, it implies that he's like a womanizer and like a um, a kind of playboyish kind mm-hmm. of figure. And he's not. He's very sexually frustrated. He kind of holds out for as long as he can. And Inga kind of keeps throwing herself at him. But, you know, when you look at Inga, it would be really easy to view her as kind of like 
like a slut. Like a slut. But she's. But the movie never does, and the characters never do. Right. She's not so much like. As much as she is, her character is like immediately sexualized from like the moment we meet her, because the very first. Would you like a roll in the hay? Yeah. The very first joke we get from her is a joke about having sex. But there's a very kind of like fun, innocent, playful cleanness to mm-hmm. her sexuality. Um, I don't know about clean, but definitely like, cause that seems like a strange word. Well, to just use. in the way that like, you know, there's this sort of idea that like women who like sex are dirty and tawdry and, and sure. slutty. I think like a better word is pure. Like she's just very upfront about what she wants and would like that. Yeah. And she just seems like a good, nice person. And I think, you know, we could use more depictions of people who want sex in their lives in media who are like good, nice, kind, like open, like guileless people. Mm-hmm. Because I do think that like so often like someone who wants sex in their life gets portrayed as like, you know, like kind of skeevy or... um only one thing on their mind. Yeah, or not even that, just like kind of this sort of like like the femme fatale kind of imagery. Mm-hmm. Like it's not depicted as something kind of pure. Yeah. And 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 wholesome. I want I want some wholesome sexuality, you know, in things. And Inga kind of really represents that. She's not like a slut who's just only interested in sex. She falls in love with Victor and is attracted to him. And so the next, like, logical thing to do is have sex with him. And when she sees that, you know, he's so frustrated with everything, she kind of, like, makes the offer. He goes for it. And it's nice and easy between them in a way that it isn't between Victor and Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth shows up and you can now directly compare how she talks to him versus how Inga talks to him, it, I think, makes it all the more clearer that, like, Elizabeth is mistreating Victor, She's not frigid and she's not a bitch. She's just, you know, kind of rich and haughty and um, used to kind of getting her way and like and having the, the leash in her hand. Yeah. And like dangling people on the ends of strings kind of thing. Yeah. And so I think that's probably why she really goes for the creature. Right. Um, right. Does he ever get a name? No. I don't think so. No. Um, because like. I think you can see the the interesting like power play between her and the creature in uh, like the closing scene with them. Like mm. she is kind of taking on a little bit of like, um, for lack of a better word, like motherly role of like, hey, I've put like these different things up in the bathroom for you to hang like your suits here and your ties here. Um, and then is also taking her time in the bathroom to like really doll herself up um, and take like power in her appearance because she is very much into having sex with presumably her husband at this point. All of which is to bring up that like she enjoys having the leash taken from her. Yes. And so this is the thing that's kind of like difficult to talk about in the way that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. So the thing that becomes clear is after kind of being in control over Victor for so long and sort of treating Victor like a child and like kind of like, you know, keeping him under heel, 
what really sets her off is being under someone else's control Mm -hmm. and that idea of being taken. And that is not an uncommon feeling. Um, That's not an uncommon desire among people. That feeling of sort of being just like whisked off your feet and just ravished by someone. And, you know, before you know it, you're like, what has even happened? And the thing about the scene in the cave with the two of them is, again, this comes down to Madeline Kahn's performance. And it's the kind of thing where different acting choices would make a big difference in how you read the scene. But the creature whips out his dick, mm-hmm. which is it's presumably large. very large. Yes, we don't know how big, but presumably very large. Uh, Inga says that it is an enormous Schwanstuker. And immediately, Elizabeth's reaction isn't like fear or terror or like screaming or crying. It's like, oh, oh my oh 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 no no um i uh i need to be somewhere um yeah yeah you know we shouldn't we definitely shouldn't um no you know i don't think we oh 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 yes (laughs) you know like her her protestations are feeble Mm -hmm. because you know with like oh i i need to be on an important call or whatever um, her protestations are feeble because they are intentionally feeble. It's like I'm, I'm putting up the resistance that I'm supposed to put up here, but like, I don't really mean it. Yeah. And she's into it. And it's not that, you know, it's something where she doesn't want it. And then after getting raped, she wants it, mm-hmm. which is like a problematic trope in and of itself yeah. in a variety of media. No, like she immediately wants it. And it's just sort of like, Oh no, please don't stop. Totally. Um, and like you keep saying, a lot of that is thanks to Madeline Kahn's performance. And I think the way that it's like that, that whole scene is shot too. Yeah. And you know, not to put it all on Madeline Kahn, like I said before, this movie was written by people who like knew her, knew what she could perform. But I also think like, this is the intent the scene was written in as Mm -hmm. well it's not that like the actress came in and soft pedaled it with her performance like this is how we're supposed to read it because it fits in with the rest of the joke about her character it fits in with all the other psychology about her character you know that that she kind of like i feel like almost like she puts up these walls to victor and probably all she ever wanted was for him to like push back more than he does yeah Um, So that's sort of my feelings about Elizabeth and Inga, who I think could be read really um, negatively and one-dimensionally, but who I think are really uh, elevated as characters because of the performances of the actresses involved. Well, I feel like Young Frankenstein is a great example of character-based comedy. Yeah. It's not just jokes for jokes' sake. It's like... I guess to kind of go back to a quote from Brooks in the context setting, um, behavior can be funny and we're just trying to like play around with human behavior here. It also reminds me of, um, we've seen a show called Schitt's Creek and there is a little bit of a documentary after the 
show ends. And the creator, Dan Levy, talks about how he worked with his daddy, Gene Levy, who they both star on the show, that they needed to have depth to these characters if we really wanted this to be like more than just a sitcom. Mm. We wanted this to be character-based comedy. Mm -hmm. And you really see how well that works on Schitt's Creek. And Young Frankenstein is a great example of how a dumb, silly movie that has like sex jokes jokes about like big knockers Mm -hmm. can have a lot of heart to it and can have a lot of depth to these characters. Well, I think, you know, that's the influence of Gene Wilder in wanting to make sure that like the story worked, which is a huge point in young Frankenstein's favor that it like works as a story and it works as a movie. So, you know, if, if it, I mean, if it didn't have the jokes, it would be very, very thin Mm-hmm. Uh, there wouldn't be a lot of meat on the bones, but the bones are there in a way that like they aren't in like Casino Royale or um, the Magic Christian or like uh, a lot of goofy zany comedies from the late 60s, early 70s, which mostly just feel like even the party, which is considered to be a very big classic comedy. And, you know, there's a conversation that could be had about its problematic elements but regardless it's it's seen as like a major classic there's no there's nothing really there it's Mm -hmm. just peter sellers like wandering around and goofy stuff happens yeah and then there's chaos at the end a lot of you can tell when a comedy from this era didn't have a script or like didn't have a good script if the ending is let's just put everyone who's been in the movie up till now on screen at one time and like maybe an elephant and a tiger and like bubbles or, and just, they get into like a big mob and that's funny. Right. Um, when they end like that, you know that like there was no plan for this shit and young Frankenstein has like an ending, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I, I really like how they managed to integrate quotes from Shelley Mm. throughout the film. Um, Basically, if I were to pitch Young Frankenstein to someone who has seen, like, Frankenstein and Bride, I would say this is how you would have Frankenstein with a happy ending. Right, yeah. Um, Because it still covers all of the beats of, like, parenthood, how the creature actually feels, but instead of it obviously being it's a comedy not a horror movie right so we can actually have a happy ending we can actually resolve these problems and it's done through frederick becoming an actual person in the creature's life and uh through love and care and compassion yeah he he decides to like love and care for the creature and he also decides to like fix his abnormal brain rather than just kind of throwing up his hands exactly which is uh one thing that is like key with henry frankenstein in 1931 Mm -hmm. um because he's just kind of like well i guess he's a rampaging monster i'll just let the mob deal with it i guess right now right the backstory in this movie is sort of like an amalgam of past frankensteins uh as i mentioned in the context setting it's it's more of like based on your pop culture memory of frankenstein than any like specific details but that being said like obviously it's it's about the universal frankensteins it's just maybe not strictly in continuity with them the dialogue that you hear when they first enter the lab is straight out of the 1931 movie it's Mm -hmm. it's exactly quote for quote the 1931 movie with mel brooks 
doing like a pretty good Colin Clive impression. Like, you know, it's not him. Cause he's dead. Well, they could have used the, Oh sure. The archive audio, right? You know, it's not the actual archive audio from the movie, but like, it's, it's close enough that like, I never knew that was Mel Brooks until doing the research for this go around. Yeah. Right. And then as you mentioned, there's quotes from Shelley when um, Frederick reads from Victor's notes, they are paraphrases and quotes from the original Shelley novel. A lot of the scenes in the movie, as I mentioned in the context setting, are taken from the first four Mm -hmm. universal movies. Like there's a lot of stuff where you could exactly build young Frankenstein out of scenes from the older movies. Yeah. Um, A lot of imagery that's taken directly from there. So I think all of this shows that like one of the key things that makes Young Frankenstein fun to watch is it's a parody where the people parodying the source clearly have like respect and affection for the source. Yeah. Like that uh, reviewer's quote I Mm, gave. Yeah. Yeah. Where like it's not a movie like the parody here is about putting people in the exact Frankenstein's story like the exact situations from those old movies and just you know playing it for laughs instead of scares yeah it's not a comedy film that's like looking at I don't know the cobwebs and being like oh isn't that silly yeah it's not it's not it's it's not actually making fun of Frankenstein it's just taking the story and playing it in a different genre um it's not yeah exactly like going like bringing someone back from the dead. How stupid is that? What yeah. a ridiculous premise. Absolutely. Why do you, why, why are you here, Igor? Why is this happening? Why am I using, you know, like it's not cinema sins pointing out every little plot hole and trying to make that a joke. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that really helps it a lot. Yeah. And this kind of goes back to like that character based comedy, yeah. right? Like these characters are still like Fred is still Fred Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, the creature is still the creature and is misunderstood. The people on screen behave in line with who they are. Mm-hmm. They themselves are not jokes, you know? Right. Um, even to the point of Igor, like Marty, honestly, I think he steals the show in quite a few scenes. He's, he's, he's definitely a, like a scene stealer because he's always doing stuff even when he's not the focus of the screen. Yeah. Um, what I what was surprised about, especially after doing the research, um, because Wilder was like, I don't want you in this movie, Brooks, because like you break the fourth wall too much. But Marty does so too. He does it throughout the film. He, he mugs to the camera yeah. a lot. And I don't know, there's just something like, maybe it's because Igor is like the weirdest character on mm-hmm. screen, so he can kind of get away with being on the periphery there. I think so. But I do I do think if there were like more than one character mugging to the camera, it would be a bit much. Well, and the thing is, is that Marty Feldman is still sort of playing a character mm-hmm. as Igor. And right away from the first joke with his name, we understand that that character is like, he's a bit of a shit, (laughs) right? Like he's, he's a bit of a shit. Yeah. And whereas like Mel Brooks rarely feels like he's playing a character in his movies. He's playing himself in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, his, his performance style in comedy is very broad, very vaudevillian. Brooks. (laughs) But like, there isn't a bad performance in this 
movie. No. Like everyone is achieving what their roles are supposed to be, like pitch perfect. There's superb physical acting, like from Kenneth Mars with the mechanical arm, which is just brilliant physical acting. Marty Feldman as Igor is doing really great physical acting. The dialogue back and forths are very funny. The sight gags are very funny. Um, there's even a few like good jump scares here and there in the movie. Yeah, there is. Uh, I just want to note um, there's a deleted scene, uh, which, you know, would be useful in the final cut, but that is fine, uh, where it's the reading of the will. And it kind of explains why fred is coming back to the estate yeah it it explains like sets up the plot i think they cut it because the feeling was like we want to get into gene wilder and the story like quicker but it does kind of you you are a little lost at the start of the movie about like wait what's happening why is he doing things um which is fine like a lot of these movies just kind of throw you in and you just have to get along with it but in this deleted scene and reading of the will, um, there is a final recording of uh, the great-grandfather, Frankenstein, um, kind of saying, here's what will happen with my will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that voice is played by John Carradine. Which I didn't know before this go-around. But when I told you, you were like, oh, shit. Yeah, it, it is. totally is. Yeah. What's funny is I was reaching for my phone as we watched that deleted scene to be like, who the fuck's voice is this? And b- before I got to my phone, you were like, this is John Carradine then. Yeah, I saw you reaching for your phone. I was like, I'll save you the trouble. Yeah. Um. So I'm also a little sad that the scene got cut because it's like, hey, look, John Carradine. Like, yeah. Uh, it's nice when <laughs> he can get some work. <laughs> well, and it's one of the few, like, other than you know, reaching out to Kenneth Strickfaden, like it's one of the few people from that era of movie who actually is represented Yeah, in the film. Like, and you know, James Whale was dead. Colin Clive was dead. Uh, Boris Karloff, I believe, was dead by 1974. Um, Bela Lugosi was dead. Like everyone was like dead. <laughs> like, so I understand why there aren't like a lot of cameos the way that like you would do now if you were doing this kind of movie where you'd stuff it full of cameos. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. And John Carradine's clearly having a really fun time doing yes. that voice role. Absolutely. The universal aesthetic is copied so well. To the point where you think these are original sets. Yes, absolutely. Cause they look like the Frankenstein castle is like an amalgam of every universal castle set. Yeah. Um, the, the lab looks great. The forests have like that exact universal like Wolfman forest. Right. Where it's like, yeah, we're like the forest floor is completely flat and we have some like weird trees here and there that are exactly the height of the frame. And then like everything's just covered in mist. What's funny is that I think this movie makes a lot of that aesthetic look better than it did (laughs) in most of those movies. Just because this movie like this movie is low budget compared to like Avengers but like, you know, with its $2 million and it's what you said something like 54 day shooting schedule. Yeah. Like most of those old universal movies were shot in a week, two weeks. Yeah. You know, the early ones, like the first movie in every universal series, like had some time and money, but like very quickly, the sequels got very cheap and made very quick. And so a lot of times this movie like looks better than the actual movies it's riffing on. It might be like Mel Brooks's 
best looking movie. Like he does a really good job with the visuals and the directing and camera movements and doing things that like really enhance the drama of scenes. Black and white just kind of does wonders for making a movie look good in my opinion. Yeah. Um, you can really feel like no wonder Brooks was down with David Lynch shooting the elephant man in black and white, you know, about 10 years later because, you know, he had shot young Frankenstein and knew like when you need black and white and how, what it can add to a movie. That's the other thing about this as a comedy. It's like a good movie. Like it's well-made down the line, right? Like Spaceballs is very, very funny. I, I still laugh at a lot of the gags in Spaceballs, even though some of them like are, are dated like the VHS gag, but like Spaceballs is shot like a sitcom. Like it's shot in a very plain kind of style. You know, this movie looks great. (laughs) The village set looks like the old village backlot sets in those universal movies. Yeah, it's just really well done, Sarah. I I really enjoy this movie. And I think even if you haven't seen it, it's one of those comedies that still holds up. I would agree. Um, I'm happy we watched this and uh, have completed a new installment in the horror adjacent bonus episode series. (laughs) A big thank you to our patrons for supporting the show and allowing us to do these bonus episodes. We literally could not do this without you. So thank you. Yes, thank you very much. If you'd like to become a patron of the night, you can do so by heading on to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Uh, patrons at the $1 level get thanked on the show. Patrons at the $5 level get thanked on the show and regular bonus audio patrons at the $10 level get thanked on the show get the regular bonus audio and get regular bonus writing uh, such as sarah's ongoing gothic retrospective series so if all that sounds like fun to you head to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast thanks for listening and we will see you guys at our regularly scheduled uh scream scene episodes bye bye